It's about becoming a smarter island and becoming better decision makers. And in the end, that's all this ICT has got to be good for something, right? So that's the ultimate goal. Welcome to Chatting InfoLit, a podcast for new professionals produced for the CLIP Information Literacy Group. In this series, we'll be hearing from both new and seasoned professionals across different sectors about their experiences, as well as discussing information literacy projects they have been involved with. this episode of Chatting in for Lit, we're joined by Drew Whitworth, who is with the Institute of Education at the University of Manchester. And Drew has been undertaking research into the island of St Helena and the information literacy implications of the arrival of broadband on the island this year. So Drew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, well, thanks. Nice to meet you. So before we dive into the research that you're doing, would you mind saying just a little bit about yourself and how you first got involved with this topic? Um, sure. I mean, I'm a reader at the Manchester Institute of Education, been there since 2005, and it was probably around that time that I began focusing my research on IL, because that's about when I was introduced to it at a conference. The catalyst for this work was a gentleman called Gareth Drabble, who came to study in Manchester on the degree on which I teach, which is the MA in Digital Technologies, Communication and Education. And poor bloke comes over to Manchester with his achievement scholarship. And it was the COVID year, 2020 to 21. So, you know, of course, he's locked in a room until about February when he decided to go back to St. Helena. It is pronounced St. Helena, by the way, if you're on the island, that's how they say it. So I've adopted that pronunciation. And yeah, he was... At the time, the ICT teacher on the island, secondary school, he's since become the cybersecurity awareness and training officer for the St Helena government, but more on that later, I'm sure. And yeah, he introduced me to the place, but also to the fact that this development, this undersea cable was on its way, which is in a way why he'd won the scholarship and told me in one of the, about the only occasion we were actually allowed to meet in that year about a grant that was available from the St Helena Research Institute. And that's basically one person, Becky Cairns-Wicks, who's originally a naturalist, but um, and now as well as running a f- spectacularly beautiful farm on St Helena, runs the St Helena Research Institute. We, we put in a bid for money to help, what's the word, the kind of application said a project to study the impact of the arrival of the Equiana cable on health, education and business. And those were the three things that we were tasked with looking at. And so we won it. And what I basically got from the St. Helena Research Institute was enough money to go and make two visits to the island. The second one of which was originally going to be post cable, but the delays in the project had been so long that what I ended up doing was go there twice so far. I've been there in November 2021 and I was there in January, February this year and so have effectively done the before part of, of this research. And I've done some archive studies here in the UK as well to put this whole thing into its historical and economic context. That's really interesting. So that as well kind of sets up the the question of what's happening now and some of the background and the history of the islands that you've been looking into and that leads into the the current development. Well, there's a lot of history to go through. I mean, one of the points about St Helena is until 1502, nobody knew it was there and it hadn't become like an informational thing. It wasn't a concept, you know, no one had any idea it was there. 
And that what that leads to is the fact that it's one of the few places on Earth where its entire human history is documented. And, and there's, you know, a surprisingly large amount of stuff to look at in terms of documentation and the archives and evidence of, you know, how, how the place has developed. There's, there's a small but I would say quite flourishing genre of historical studies about the place, including particularly about Napoleon. I mean, one of the few things that anybody knows about St. Helena is, oh yeah, Napoleon, he was exiled and died there. And, you know, it's this history, I think, is important because what's happening now, this introduction of you know, high-speed broadband internet to this extremely remote place, I think you have to see it in terms of the way that the island has developed as, a, as an important node or, or a node in the global communications network and a node in the flow of information and capital and transport, you know, particularly around the globe, because seeing Equiano as something that's like never happened to St. Helena before is not correct. It's not like there's some primitive tribe out there in the middle of the ocean who are suddenly, you know, coming into contact with humanity for the first time. I mean, to say some of the key points in the history, which will explain what I mean, what effectively happened after 1502, no one was really interested in it that much. But around about 1634, I think it is, I'll, I'll get some of these dates wrong, but around about then, Oliver Cromwell, in fact, leases it to the East India Company. I mean, the British state claimed it and, and effectively it was leased to the East India Company and it was run by the East India Company. I mean, this is a corporate concern, you know, it's not it's not some colonisation as such. And yeah, they used it as a way station because of the way that the winds and the ocean currents operate. It was the place to stop to when you were coming home from the Indies. If you were coming home from India or the East Indies and you came around the Cape of Good Hope and there's St. Helena, it's on the way home. It's a nice spot to, you know, stretch your legs, have a bit of shore leave. More importantly, get some fresh water, get some fresh food. And, and eventually as technology develops to become a coaling station. There was a place to take on fresh coal. Not that there's coal on St. Helena, but it was, you know, like a, a cache. You could leave it there. Yeah, it was, it was settled around this time and, and in a lot of ways was quite plugged into these information flows. I mean, it, it's got the oldest surviving public library in the whole Southern Hemisphere. There are printing presses on the island and one of the um, archival sources I looked at was this, the first sort of newspaper that was printed there, which was um, from 1811, the St. Helena Register. And it was really interesting to see how the front page, I mean, this sounds funny in a way because it's um, to, to modernise, but the front page of this newspaper was an article written by the governor himself, Governor Beetson, called On Clearing Lands of Grubs. And, but, but it was interesting because the East India Company, you know, Beetson was, was a servant of the crown, yes. You know, it's crown lands, a property of the British crown. Beetson was a representative of the crown, as, as are the modern-day governors still. You know, it's, it's still exactly what they are, and we can't say he's representative of the Queen anymore. He's now representative of the King, of course. But Beetson's also the manager, and he sees it as his role to understand the, the problems facing him and facing this remote settlement as a whole, and obviously things like agriculture, because you've got to grow enough food, ideally, as much as you can. You, they were worried early on about deforestation, and, and obviously they had invasions. Of, I mean, termites arrived one day in 1840 and ate most of the town, I think, you know, and are still suffering. <laughs> wow. Anyway, you know, it's there, it's doing its thing out there in the middle of the Atlantic. The East India Company are quite happy, it seems, with 
the services that they it brings from having this little way station out there and then come 1815 suddenly it's the most famous place on the planet and that's not exaggeration because napoleon is exiled there and saint helena's remoteness suddenly becomes useful it's suddenly something that's actually an advantage then that makes it of value to the british state who have this i mean i think napoleon was treated a bit shabbily actually because he was never actually convicted of any kind of offense or crime they just shipped him off there i mean the whole trying to conquer most of europe thing usually doesn't go down hugely (laughs) well (laughs) so napoleon was i think they didn't like napoleon because he was the first guy to really try and say look all, all are equal before the law none of this monarchy aristocracy stuff over time, it was used as a penal settlement for other places. The Boers, uh, you know, captured prisoners of war from the Boer War. There was a Zulu, Dinner Zulu, was imprisoned there and seemed to have a much better time of it than um, Napoleon because his descendants exist on the island to this day, including my colleague Gareth, who claims to be descended from the Zulu king who was um, imprisoned there. There were some, as late as the 1960s, there were some Bahraini dissidents who were imprisoned there. But, you know, what also happened around this time like the later part of the 19th century is really two big things that really were blows from which i don't think the place has ever really recovered and and one is that in an 1834 and i i have got that date right because i checked my notes the uk government take control i can't remember exactly what happened to the east india company exactly but for whatever reason it, it kind of handed over this particular possession to the uk government and since 1834 it's been basically run by Whitehall, firstly as part of the Colonial Office, and now I think it's the Foreign and Commonwealth Office who are kind of in charge of it. And technology's changed as well. And I mean, this drags it back to the key points that that we're making here today about seeing the investments that are made in infrastructure and in communications and information technologies related to its geographical position and to the role it's playing in these global flows of capital and information. What happened essentially around this time is two big things happened. Number one, ships became bigger and sailing, you know, sail was very rarely used after this point. They were big steamships, could carry enough coal, didn't really need to stop off and refuel in in the island. Refrigeration as well was a technology that made a difference. Once you could refrigerate stuff, you could take, you know, fresh fruit, you weren't going to all die of scurvy just by simply sailing to India. So again, the use of St. Helena as a kind of farm, you know, way of supplying ships, it just cut off. And and even more of a big change, the Suez Canal opened, you know, so you don't go around Africa to get to India anymore. And there were probably, well, it could be up to 20 to 30, maybe even 50 times as many ships used to call it St. Helena every year than do now and arguably it was less isolated well not even arguably i would say definitively it was a lot less isolated in 18th 19th centuries than it is now it's really interesting comparison once we get into talking about what's happening now and the information literacy concerns around that it's interesting that saint helena starts out as kind of the international maritime equivalent of like a company town with the east india company kind of a private interest running the place by proxy and how that kind of links up to some of the things that we'll be talking about in the next bit. I'm interesting and significant thing about St Helena now is how that shifted about 800 miles northwest to Ascension Island and that was never inhabited by anybody at all. I mean people knew it was there or they've discovered it around the same time but that was never inhabited by anybody. I mean that's a lump of desert clinker. At least St Helena has trees. You know? <laughs> um, until Napoleon 
was exiled when the British occupied Ascension Island, just in case the French were going to launch some big rescue attempt from there. This is literally why they did it. And again, nobody was everyone was like, what are we going to do with this? But nowadays, and certainly from about the, the 18, the end of the 19th century, cable and wireless, you know, are, are formed around the, the building of undersea communications cables. This is Equiano is just a, the next generation of stuff that, that had reached St. Helena and Ascension Island by, by the 1900, I think it was 1899 when this was opened. And what you've got on Ascension Island now are the NASA tracking station, for instance. There, there was a U.S. Air Force base there in World War II. You've, the BBC had a relay station there. You know, it's a major node in the telecommunications networks of the world and nominally a dependency of St. Helena in theory. And the governor of St. Helena is, in effect, the governor of all of these islands. But in practice, St. Helena has no jurisdiction over Ascension, and that is now, if you like, a company town. It, it is, again, nominally represented by the governor. The governor represents the crown's interests as the colonial power on this island, but, you know, cable and wireless don't run that as a, as a sole company town anymore. I mean, they've all got privatised and sold off anyway, which is a story to tell. But the shift of the technologies and shifted away from St. Helena in the sort of post-war period and... I mean, it's bringing the story up to date, but now you've got a place where, you know, 4,000 people live there, roughly. Been a certain amount of population decline in, in recent years, although it also rose through the 20th century. So there are, it's fluctuated over time, but there's about 4,000 people live there. You know, they call it home. It's a beautiful place, but it is dependent on British aid, in essence. It's not self-sufficient in a way that, say, the Falkland Islands is, Gibraltar is, and these are places with similar status bermuda and some of the you know these tax havens in the caribbean st helena is i think the only one of these that is still dependent on british aid and what you've really got at the moment is a place that's really trying to i mean it's very it's very valuable and it and i think to be fair you know mrs mrs thatcher's government is 1981 basically because of fears that millions of hong kong chinese were suddenly going to start waltzing into britain claiming their citizenship rights in 1997 what happened in the 80s was that all of the overseas territories apart from the falklands and gibraltar for various esoteric reasons lost their citizenship and this was a massive blow to st helena you know and it was certainly something that there was a long campaign to get this back which blair's government finally did offer them and i think since that time to be fair there's been a little bit more interest in what this place actually does that offer as value for this this aid that is given and one of the things that's very much worth stressing is that at the moment this is home to something like maybe a 25 to 30 percent of britain's bio of the united kingdom's biodiversity the marine and the cloud forest environment there are indigenous plants and invertebrates and birds well one bird anyway there and, and marine animals that are found nowhere else on the planet and you know there's a lot of heritage there there's a great amount of architectural and, and informational heritage there's cultural diversity there's a lot of value there as well in terms of its being a location for research. And, and this is something that did come up when I was interviewing people on the island on my previous visits, that not just the sort of research that I'm doing, but people were saying, look, we could be a test bed for working with a very remote place. You know, how do you offer a modern health service in a place which is 1,200 miles from the nearest continental land. You could try things out with a community of 4,000 people that's small enough, but also self-contained and isolated enough to 
to try something new, perhaps with, you know, terms of generating green electricity and so on. So what value can it assert? I think it offers plenty. That sets us up really well, I think, to start talking about the specifically the broadband project and sort of what the implications and the impacts of that are going to be. The way you were describing it earlier, I think, is it safe to say that we're talking about more an acceleration of communication? The internet arrived via satellite uplink. What we've got with the internet at the moment, it's not bad. I mean, having spent some time there myself, I could run most of what I would consider my job, but we would have struggled to have done what we're doing now. Video conferencing is tough. It literally in, in places even like the community college or, or the government, it's called the castle, but it's the kind of the government building. Someone's having a video conference like this. All of my colleagues would have to know we were doing it and they probably have to log off. I can't imagine any educational institution where that would be easy or even possible to coordinate. It's expensive. When I first went there, because partly because I was also for my first visit there, spending 10 days on my own in quarantine in a, in a house with a lovely view, I have to say, but it was 10 days on my own. And it was like, mm. um, I wanted a decent internet access. So I basically got what's called the gold package, which is not quite the very best package that you can get on the island, but it was pretty good. And that cost me a hundred pounds for a month. And I pay 33 pounds ish for that kind of thing at home. And I would add television was extra as well. Right? So that's well over a grand a year for inhabitants of the... Particularly relative to local incomes, yeah, which are noticeably lower than in the UK. There are bandwidth caps. You have a free allowance from midnight to 6am. So you can download what you want from midnight to 6am and it doesn't affect your usage cap. But that's, you know, blamed for then making sure the internet is still very slow during midnight to 6am and it's been blamed for absenteeism at school and work and all in all as well what you've got is a kind of broader impact of the people have said that you know there's a certain lack of credibility perhaps from people on the island you know if, if you you're talking to potential investors people you might want to do business with or, or or even you know do research with I, I find it very difficult at the moment to be honest to communicate in real time with my colleagues this is just something I've got used to the people I'm working with on St Helena it's it's very difficult to organize a kind of synchronous conversation we just have to take our time over it and as I've had said by some of my respondents in the interviews you know some people understand but not everybody there's no connection for instance to things like the international banking network I blithely arrived on the island the first time with literally about two pound fifty in my pocket going I'll get something from the ATM in the airport of course it's not an ATM for for 800 miles in any direction at least probably more actually probably 1500 and it's generally a cash economy. I mean, there is a sort of local credit visa card, got a St. Helena bank account, you can use it. I had to queue up at the bank every so often and get, you know, get cash. Um, th these are the limitations, I think, that are very much recognised at the moment. So it's in terms of broadband coming then, it's almost a question of opportunities for the island as a whole to get a certain level of that recognition in terms of what it can offer and what it can do. Yeah, I mean, what effectively will change if you want to look at this in the broadest sense? What you've got now is, is to some extent, an informational gulf that still corresponds with this great physical gulf. Now, I mean, it, the island's always to some extent lagged behind you know, other more accessible places in, in this respect. I mean, having said that, it 
had one of the first public libraries in the southern hemisphere so it did but I mean, you obviously still had to ship books there i don't think you know probably not a great throughput of books in, in this library down the years and yeah like now okay yes happily you can still look at government information on the St Helena government website. I mean, people do undertake online learning and so on at the moment. But like I said, it's not convenient and it's not so flexible. Does that limit the the sort of range of people who are likely to engage with these things as well? I mean, just with the financial burden? Well, yes. And it limits the level of expertise. And again, from my interview data, this is something that has come up in various different ways. Some modern and widely used forms, for instance, of what you might call remote diagnosis or you know, of health conditions. Apparently, so I'm told, it is a way to diagnose Parkinson's disease is to film somebody walking from various different angles and, and analyze their, their gait and you know, the way that they walk. And apparently this is a useful way of, of testing uh, for Parkinson's disease. All I'm, I would like to point out, I am referring to things that people have told me. If I'm wrong, it's, it's these guys, right? <laughs> but We can put a massive asterisk next yeah, to the, well, the entire episode. <laughs> however, if that sounds cool to me, and it, and it sounds like mm-hmm. something that would be, you know, quite feasible and easy to do in a place where, you know, all you can get those videos, that, that recording, transported somehow through the internet to a computer and there'll probably be an AI doing it these days for you. Of course, that cannot be done on the other. It's as simple as that. You know, that that data, even if it can be collected, is too expensive and too bandwidth heavy to easily get off the island. There's things like, you know, real-time tracking. There's there's no mobile roaming data signal on the island, for instance, particularly at least not in the remote parts. I mean, if you're near one of the places that does have public Wi-Fi in the one town, Jamestown, then you're okay. But out in the field and and including in, for instance, some of these valuable habitats that, you know, need to be monitored and work done to to look after them and preserve them, or the rare species, the indigenous species like the wirebird, which is kind of the symbol of the island, the one indigenous bird that's left. The possibility of, for instance, generating data, monitoring these things in real time. And having that data accessible then, of course, not just to people on the island, but globally, potentially. I mean, some of the things that were coming up to about sort of the benefits of things, there, there's all sorts of ways in which this new bandwidth might be exploited in order to secure for the island something that it doesn't have at the moment, which is attention. Because there it is doing its thing. There are some informational agents in the UK there's an organization called the Friends of St. Helena, which is what it says. And and then there's something called the St. Helena Association, which is more something that organizes events for expatriate saints who are on the island, kind of raising money for, for things like medical care on the island. The Friends of St. Helena is more of a kind of informational agent. It's there to sort of publicize the place, advocate for it to some extent, but also to act as a way of, of directing people's interest to the island. And there have always been various agents like this. There was a gentleman called Trevor Hurl who accumulated an enormous archive of correspondence where you can tell that everybody who wants to know anything about St Helena writes to him. And he must have spent his entire life writing letters, which are all in the Bodleian Library now in Oxford. And I looked at these and I mean, he was an immensely effective information agent. We don't necessarily need people like that, individuals like that anymore, because we've got the internet. And, and But all the same, 
a lot of the kind of archival information that's on the island that's really valuable. There's, there's a British library project at the moment, for instance, funded by the British Library, where they're digitising the old East India Company records that still remained on the island. And with the imminent arrival of the new bandwidth, all of this kind of information is going to be much easier to transfer. I was reading some of the the articles that you sent over in advance of the episode, and it kind of ties into that conversation around so often when these kind of more isolated areas are talked about in the realm of information literacy, it's focusing on them as information consumers and sort of what they deal with the information that's coming in. But looking at it from that information producing perspective and like what is there to come out and be used and talked about elsewhere is sort of equally important, if not more important. I, I totally agree. Literacy, after all, is both reading and writing texts and, and generally reading and writing the world. And Obviously, there is a danger that this new bandwidth, this cable, could become like a, just a pipe, almost like a waste pipe, pouring rubbish into this community's information landscape and polluting it. And I guess, obviously, we there is a concern about this on the island. Hence, Gareth Drabble's job title, you know, Cybersecurity Awareness and Training Officer. I think I got that right. This is a concern. There is this history of invasive species. There is a recognition that St. Helena is a vulnerable environment. It's a pretty small community and more information might equal more misinformation, more AI generated meaningless trash, the potential for romance scams or or whatever. And, And not only that, the possibility that suddenly the entire island becomes some giant Atlantic botnet which is not, not an unreasonable fear. and I mean, you know. It's kind of a logical conclusion of that history of commercial imperialism as well, isn't it? That's tied right back to the very beginning of... That's worth coming back to because there is an important point to be made about the diffusion of the benefits to, of, of all of this. You're exactly right to say that it, it, it's about the saints learning as, as individuals, as, as businesses, as families and, and as a whole community about how to reap the benefits that all along have been claimed that are going to come here. I mean, ex- expectations are pretty high. I mean, I, I didn't mention in my history about the, the saga of the airport, for instance. An airport was mooted on the island for, for decades. I mean, I've seen records of this being suggested back in the 50s and 60s. But until 2017, the only way to get there was still to go on a boat. And, and that was a minimum of six days from South Africa or two weeks, I think, from the UK. But yeah, eventually the airport was built. 2017, you, you've got one flight a week to Johannesburg now, although I think they're bringing in a midweek flight soon, so it will become two flights a week. But the price of that increase of access, you know, the enhancement of access in one way, the price was the loss of the old shipping service, the RMS, Royal Mail St. Helena, I think. One of the things that that led to was the fact that whereas the boat, the ship, was seen as of the island, part of the island's fabric, it was a cultural thing. It was a time by which you made this transition in various different ways. You you, you took your time getting used to the island and then you arrived there. The plane obviously takes you there, at least from Johannesburg, in a couple of hours. I I can't remember exactly how long it is, but it seemed to be about four hours. And... That's great on one level, but the planes, the airport is now not seen to be of the island. It's sort of something that's been plonked on the island and they're really for the benefit of others rather than necessarily the island. All of these arguments were made about what an enormous financial benefit it would bring. Well, we'll get 30,000 tourists a year. You're not going to get 30,000 tourists a year on St. Helena because there's not, 
there's not and never will be the infrastructure to provide for them, not least the water. So the cable is seen, I think, as something different. It's seen as something that has the potential to lead to more equitable outcomes and, and to have the potential for the island, not just now to be producers of information in the in the sense of, you know, look at us and to, and to do things, which I think are valuable, but to do things like, for instance, stream local festivals for, for expatriates and other people of interest. An idea that came up that is amusing, but several people have suggested it, is that probably the most famous inhabitant of St Helena at the moment is probably Jonathan, the giant tortoise, who's seriously, though, he's he's the oldest recorded land animal. And he appears in the papers, you know, and stuff like that in the UK. I mean, people have suggested Jonathan Cam. Not exactly on on his shell or anything, but, you know, cameras around the garden, people, people would follow it. If there's one thing the internet loves, it's interesting animals doing things. So it's, yeah, it's not necessarily like a frivolous example, is it? Because it's like that, that's attention, as you were saying. It came up as a joke and then various people mentioned it. And I think it might even happen. We'll see. The production of information, it's not just that kind of thing. The production of information then becomes the production of capital. And this, yes. this is really what it's all about. All of the things in a way that have been talked about thus far, the, the telegraph network in the first place and the reason why, you know, we, we had telegraphs and why cable and wireless made money from, from doing this. These were set up in the first place so that people in the UK could get a sense of what crop prices were being charged in the US and they wanted to find out on the spot rather than wait six weeks or six days anyway, isn't it, to cross the Atlantic. So information as the key determinant these days of capital and the generation of capital, is this cable to be used to not only generate capital, but to generate capital for St. Helenians and to keep it on the island? I'm sure by now we're we're all quite aware of the fact that despite their utility and, you know, I'm still using Facebook for various things. We are, of course, aware, I hope, that these things are generating capital from us, from our social interactions and so on. And however we feel about this, it, it's a fact. Is this cable to be something that now just extracts capital from an island that's already had plenty of capital extracted from it down the years. I mean, it's St Helena has typically been seen as a source of relatively cheap labour down the years, and it's not currently plugged into the matrix, if you want to put it like that, as in quite the same way as most of us. Obviously, the internet is used on the island, but you, you don't see, for instance, Alexa. And to that point, listening to you, I can feel Google and Amazon sort of sitting there, rubbing their hands, waiting. Equiano is a Google project. I mean, that needs to be said. There's a consortium of companies involved in terms of the physical laying of the thing, the, the equipment, the machinery. I mean, this Equiano basically is going to start in Portugal. It's going to make landfall in Portugal. And it's going all the way down the west coast of Africa, basically, to somewhere in South Africa. St Helena is a branch to this, but there are branches heading to places like Angola and Gabon and places like that. Google are a major backer of this. There's companies like Alcatel who are involved in the laying of the project. What you also have on St Helena at the moment is a monopoly internet service provider. Now, this is now a company called Sure. They are a descendant of cable and wireless in a way. Cable and wireless got to the 80s 
the rush for privatization of Thatcher's government meant that it was one of the earliest companies. If you remember, anybody listening to this remembers Mercury Communications, one of the first rivals of BT. They span off from cable and wireless. These things were then divided up, sliced up, privatized, sold. And what you've got now on the island is Sure, who are owned by the Bahraini royal family. They take out £1.1 million a year profit from the place, which is about £250 for every saint, by the way. So it's quite a lot. It's not decided whether they're going to become the ISP or retain their status as ISP once the new services is finally in place. They may do, they may not. One web are talking about opening what's called an earth station there, because it is a bit of a gap in the world communications network, but it's a shipping planes, they, they lose quality of coverage when they're in this area. So, you know, people are talking about setting up an earth station and all of these things are, you know, probably will be important generators of capital that make the investment in the cable worthwhile. But for who? One of the things that I think I found out, or at least has come clear to me from the archival research, is going back to this point about the fact that St Helena, it's not like it's been unconnected to the World Communications Network. And in the 1960s, for instance, there was something there called the Diplomatic Wireless Service, which nobody knew very little about at the time and very little about since, but everybody knows was basically spying on Africa. It was a place in which to spy in communications in West Africa. And kind of this is one of those things everybody knows, but isn't officially the case. Very little of benefit of this radio. I mean, this was on St. Helena before St. Helenians had a radio station. And about the only direct thing that seemed to come out of the diplomatic wireless service that left any kind of legacy with the island was that in 1967, some couple of guys from the DWS worked as volunteers to help St. Helena get a radio station. Cable and wireless would, and this was often described as a kind of magnanimous gesture, cable and wireless, who again had a relay station there and on Ascension, would magnanimously let Radio St. Helena use its major broadcast signal, its, its transmitter, once a year so that they could be picked up by radio hams around the globe. And this would be a way of kind of publicizing it. And for many years, I think through the sort of 70s and 80s, there was a regular St. Helena radio day where, and you know, people used to do this, didn't they? It was like collecting football grounds or, or mountains. You know, it was like collecting, oh, I heard Radio St. Helena, tick that one off. But the point is, why didn't cable and wireless just let them use their transmitter all the time? It's the ownership thing, isn't it? That's why this is such a fascinating case study from an information literacy perspective as well. It's because sort of listening to what you were saying about who it's benefiting. We spend so much time and I've spent so much time in sessions, you know, where we teach information literacy to students. and We talk about the authorship of information. Something that so often gets left on the cutting room floor of those sessions is the ownership of information, which I think almost now is becoming a much more important consideration. Will this cable be made into a public good? As far as I know, it has been activated. I keep hearing different dates as to when it has been or was activated, but work still needs doing on St Helena to get the broadband effectively into people's houses. Because, I mean, at the moment, the pipe comes up and there it is on the beach, a place called Rupert's Bay. And after that, so what? I mean, at the moment, very few, if any, people on the island are actually seeing this in their homes and probably none of them. So again, it's it's like, in a way, there's still this running to catch up. Bang, the infrastructure's gone in and corporate interests can start benefiting from this, but making this capacity, make, making this facility 
into something that is useful for the general public, you know, is taking investment from somewhere else. I mean, 26 million, I think, euros, again, I bandy around figures without having checked them precisely, but it was roughly around this figure that was secured from the European Development Fund, the bid getting in just before Brexit, fortunately for them. That's covered the installation of the cable, but my feeling is, well, why didn't it cover all of this as well? I mean, you know, it's like a different deal has had to be struck. And it's the way that there is on St. Helena, because there's not much generation of capital on the island at the moment, not not through want of trying on behalf of many people on the island, but there are there are systematic issues with generating capital. There is, for instance, at the moment, you know, there's Saint FM, which is this great radio station I've been on it twice, once to talk about my work and once to talk about football, and it was enjoyable both times. And they do a great job, and it's a way by which the Saints do get a voice in the world that, that you can stream this on sites like Radio Garden and so on. But, you know, that's been, that's funded philanthropically. That's funded by Michael Ashcroft to the tune of a few hundred thousand pounds a year of his own money, which is so good for him. And But it shows that without this external support, often from the British government, or philanthropists like this, or or indeed the work of people like the St Helena Association, it's usually the case that some kind of funding kick like that is needed to get things done. But what the ideal is, the British government have always said, oh, you need to be more self-sufficient, you need to be more self-sufficient. And I think they would like to be, why, why wouldn't they want to be more self-sufficient? The question is then, how do these opportunities translate into Things like new career opportunities for, for young St. Helenians, for instance. If you wanted to become a, a web designer, my, my son, I mean, he's he's up in Scotland studying computer art. He would like to be an animator. A, a St. Helenian could never have conceived of running a career like that from their home. But now potentially they can. And when I was there in January, February, I met a, a Brazilian gentleman. Pedro, if you ever listen to this, hi, how are you doing? And Pedro was there with his wife. His wife was an oceanographer. She was there to do a long-term project on the on the marine environment. Pedro, I'm going to get his job wrong, but he was he was a consultant. He was helping people learn certain types of organisation, learn about how to make best use of their web resources. But he even even with the present internet on Saint Helena, he still reckoned he was able to run his job. So there he is, spending time on the island, generating capital on the island spending the money in the island's shops and so on. And even if there are issues around the island probably has to deal with, like, for instance, around, you know, who can buy property there and citizenship and residency status and all of this, that I'm not getting into these things here. All the same, this is recognised as a certain way forward for the island. And in a way, it's everybody's information literacy job or their task to think, how do we make the best use of this new resource to as i mean becky kenswick who i mentioned earlier the st helena research institute coordinator she said to me once she put it very well and i will quote her here directly she said it's about becoming a smarter island and becoming better decision makers and and in the end that's all this ict has got to be good for something right so that's the ultimate goal and are there projects and things emerging from that institute and from some of those things that are geared towards that collective development of those information skills 
Well, you certainly the Centralina government are on the case. My colleague Gareth, when I again when I was there in January, February this year, I was part of a, one of the speakers at a series of public events that they ran. Gareth, being a Chevening scholar, I think I might have mentioned that earlier. Here, there are other Chevening alumni on the island, and they got together to organise workshops around this. The St Helena Research Institute. It is a condition of being given a license to do research on the island because I mean I needed that you know I needed to um, apply for a license as a condition of even being allowed to enter St Helena I needed to wave my license at the airport and say I'm here to do research you know and as a condition of doing that I needed to agree to deposit my data with the St Helena Research Institute. Research by the way is I think the third biggest generator of income for the island after the British government and I think after tourism. People do go there on holiday. You know, it is a nice spot. I recommend it, by the way. If anybody wants, there's no beaches, but you want a nice, beautiful island. Seriously, go. But what you've got with the St. Helena Data Depository is a very kind of dry list of spreadsheets. And I know that Becky wants to make it a more education-friendly layer of digital resources over this. Much the same as the National Archives do. If you have a look at their website, there's some really yeah. quite nice little materials. So. So that's planned. I don't want to treat the island. I hope I'm not treating the island as a bunch of laboratory rats, you know, and I'm just extracting data from them just as much as Google is. I don't think so. And and I certainly want to feed that back into helping with the development of the digital and information literacy on the island, whether directly or indirectly. I mean, it feels as much like a study of the situation and how to turn the situation to good as it is anything along those lines. It's it's an educational process. I, I I work in an institute of education. I am an academic and I would say, yeah, my principal subject is education. This is always what I tick on those boxes when I apply for funding. You know, what's your principal subject area? And I would say education. You know, educating is both research and practice. I mean, we could go off a whole new hour long podcast about this if you want. But to me, it's it's impact, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're told that we need to deal with the impact of our research, and I'm all for that. I'm all for that. It's the true and absolute definition of impact, isn't it? It's It's been a great opportunity to study this change in a relatively self-contained, controllable. You know, when, as soon as I heard about the opportunity, it was like, no, that would be great. What a great thing to study. And it's it's a valuable place in for, in various ways, in many ways, informationally, environmentally, culturally. What are your next steps in terms of your portions of the the research, in terms of getting it out there? Is there anything that people should be looking out for? Sadly not at the moment. I mean, I I, ha- I did produce a kind of interim report for the, my the stakeholders on the island, and I'm going to adapt a lot of what was in that into at least one of the two papers that I'm, that I'm working on over the summer. I, I want to get out two papers. One is basically historical influences over the information landscape of St Helena. So kind of all of the things that I've already talked about regarding, you know, the history cable and wireless and what assets exist now in this information landscape and how have they kind of shifted in importance over time. So that's that's a kind of historical paper. And that probably will go to a journal that's not anything to do with information literacy. I would like to put that somewhere else. Paper two is basically the current state of readiness the level of digital media and information literacy on the island and the educational efforts that are taking place. What have my respondents on the island 
said about these things you know it's not me saying you need these things it's it's like what do they recognize about their own states of dil and what they're doing about it I i found the kids by the way on the island to be pretty savvy about all of this kind of stuff but there is a big generation gap people from let's say around 20 to 50 there's a lot of those saints living off the island because there's not a lot of jobs really to go around on the island, but many come back when they're older and or, you know, never left in the first place. But what you have kind of got a generation gap between a lot of children, young people maybe living with grandparents rather than parents. And of course, those those older people didn't get television for a long time didn't get the internet for a long time and, and it's record maybe maybe have gaps i mean i think that all of these things are problems that are recognized on the island again it's not me pointing and saying you guys have a problem i think all of these things are recognized yeah anyway that paper yeah that'll go into a journal of information literacy probably but we'll, we'll see we're a few months away from anything being published in terms of the research i've got i want to go back I've got a sabbatical coming up. It keeps kind of getting put off because the work that really needs to happen before it's worth my going back keeps getting delayed. But I I will be back at least a couple of times more yet, let's say by about early 2025, gather data on the after phase and get a book out. It's going to be a book. It has to be a book. This is a genuinely fascinating opportunity, it feels like, and something that will be well worth people reading about once it's all together a couple of years for that though give me till yeah no rush no rush yeah 2026 2026 (laughs) and that brings us to sort of the final question for the podcast so we ask all of our guests whether they have a particular book or text or anything that they'd like to add on to our definitive information literacy reading list do you have something that you would like to add to that collection Give some thought to this one. So here's something left field for you. I think everybody should read the 12th century book by Hugh of St. Victor called The Didascalicon. And you will find this best in a translation by Taylor, 1961. The Didascalicon really should lay to rest the notion once and for all that information literacy didn't exist until Paul Zukowski named it in 1974. And what it is, is it's a It's a guide to medieval scholars at the Abbey of St. Victor, which is where this guy, Hugh of St. Victor, I think he was the abbot. He was certainly a scholar who was based there. This was their library skills website. I'm seriously. And and he gives guidance on what to read, both biblical texts and secular ones as well. You know, he's, he's dealing with all areas of scholarship. He gives guidance on what to read, in what order, how to read it. He offers technical advice about this newfangled technology called the book. It's great. You know, it's like his... If you've ever seen that video of two Norwegian monks talking about and one of them doesn't know how to use the book. Yeah, I mean, he genuinely is saying, here's what the book is and here's how it works. He, he gives a guide to the structure of the Bible, which I actually found really useful. I mean, I, I don't mean as a worshipper, I mean, as a, or as a Christian, particularly even. It was like, all right, so this is how the Bible works and how it's put together and where it all came from. And I'm reading this 900 years later going, you know, actually, this is actually really useful. He goes off on occasional amusing rants about lazy students and their inability to do any work. And I think it's marvellous. So Hugh of St. Victor's Didas Calicon, written in about 1120. That's fantastic. As somebody who was a, a religious and literary historian in a previous life, I am so unbelievably happy that you've recommended you of St. Victor for our reading list. But as soon as you said it, it pinged something in the distant regions of my brain. I've possibly come across it as a reference in other things, but I am immediately going to go and seek it out as well as adding it to our list of... Check check it out. I, I took me... It, it's not a long read. Um, And Taylor's translation, 1961, Taylor, I can't remember his initial... 
really good and a good introduction to it as well. So well worth getting that. And that's a freely available text. That's an open access text online. Well, thank you so much for that, Drew. That was a genuinely interesting conversation. And yeah. um, thanks for being here. Okay, my pleasure.